Welcome to Climate Anxiety and the Kid Question, a podcast that explores climate change, how it impacts our emotions and sense of well-being in the world, and ultimately how we feel about having and raising children in this climate-altered landscape. I'm your host, Jade Sasser. In this episode, I talk to Jenny, a climate-aware therapist, researcher, and parent who was very aware of her own climate emotions as she intentionally sought to bring a child into the world, and who is very actively navigating those emotions as she does research with other parents and works with educators to bring climate-aware engagement into the classroom and beyond. Let's get into it. My name is Jenny Silverstein. I identify as a queer Jewish white woman. My pronouns are she, her, and I am a mom and a wife and a child therapist. Do issues of climate change, mental health, and parenting come together for you? In other words, what brought you to this podcast? Um, they come together in all the ways. I, it's They're so interconnected in my uh, identity that it's hard to even um, separate them out. But I will... I will say that I have a very wanted child. I um, had a long journey to get pregnant fairly late in my life. And um, so I always knew I wanted her. And then when I was pregnant was the first really, really severe drought year um, up here. I'm in Northern California and it, it just didn't rain for the whole rainy season. I remember um, feeling this sense of dread that was like so intense that it felt like it was bigger than me. It was like this genetically ingrained um, in other times and places, uh, pregnancy would not survive a drought this severe. Uh, so even though I had always known and cared very, very deeply about climate and biosphere and um, having a safe, healthy planet, I just assumed we would have a little more time. And then all mm. of a sudden here I was bringing her in this world and it um, was all unfolding uh, at the same time I was becoming a parent. And then we've also experienced a number of wildfires in my community in her early childhood as well. So um, it's I can't separate out my parenting from my climate work and my climate concern. And I think that's a that has been a common experience among people who I have interviewed for a number of people. The issues just simply kind of dovetail together. Um, I want to back up for just a moment. What year was it when the drought happened and when you were trying to bring your child into the world? Um, I it was 2014. It was the winter of 2014. Um, and I don't know if that really was the beginning of the drought being so bad, but that's how it felt to me <laughs> anyway. Sure, sure. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and before that drought had climate concerns, you know, environmental concerns in Northern California, had they been things that really factored into your journey toward becoming a parent before that drought? They didn't change my mind about wanting to be one. Um, I definitely, I, I've always been an environmental activist and, you know, someone who was very worried and cared very deeply. Um, but I think I wanted to be a mom so badly that I wouldn't let those two things mesh. I, I Part of my reasoning at that point, I remember, was um, that it felt really important to bring children into this world who could be raised to be part of the solution. And um, I felt like that was actually a form of, of action in a way. 
And it's probably an optimistic way of thinking because I imagine that you probably thought you would impart certain environmental values to your child. And have done so very intentionally. Yes, it was optimistic. It was intentional. Um, How, what I did not account for again was kind of how quick, I mean, I just kind of assumed she was going to have a childhood before things became as intense and locally as difficult as they have been. Um, So there's a lot, of course, that I couldn't foresee, but what I did not account for was the guilt. I have felt a tremendous amount of guilt at having very consciously made that set of decisions. And now I don't know what kind of world she's going to be living in. Can you tell me a little bit more about that guilt? Because Often when environmentalists talk about guilt in conjunction with having children, um, many environmentalists say they feel guilty about the impacts that they imagine that their child will have on the planet. But when Mm -hmm. I've had conversations in this context, it's not so much that for a lot of people. A lot of people feel guilty about the impacts this changing planet will have on their child. So can you talk about what this guilt means for you? Um, Yes, I would say both things are there. Um, The first one about the impact she will have on the planet feels a little more intellectual to me. And I was able to justify it away by thinking I was going to, you know, raise some amazing um, environmentalist who would also participate in making things better. I still feel that that is very possible that that could be who she turns out to be. Um, But the guilt about the future that she faces feels much more embodied. It it feels much more like this um, instinctual, like um, my job is to keep her safe and create a safe world for her. And that um, there's really no way that I can um, not fail at that job. That's that's where I go when I'm really in that, that place. Can you tell me more what you mean by that? When you say I can't fail at that job, what do you mean? Do you mean... I can't predict wildfires and make sure that we'll never be impacted? Or do you mean it kind of in a larger or more longer term sense? All of the above. Um, Certainly, you know, with wildfires, that's already proven to be true, although not really because she is safe. She was safe and we got her to safety and it was um, emotionally stressful. But that's, you know, many things are in life. Um, But that fear never quite goes away. So, um, but I think, yes, the larger, I, and also I also, I have to step, a ta- take a step back too and acknowledge um, that I've had a big journey in over her lifetime in terms of my relationship with fear and safety and privilege. I mean, I, I am a white woman and I have always felt pretty safe. Um, I am a queer woman, but I chose to live in Northern California where that feels as safe as it can get. Mm-hmm. And um, it was during the, um, during Trump's presidency, I started feeling a lot of fear around my identity, not just climate, but about being who I was. And I realized that um, that sense of safety was um, fleeting and really on the backs of my my queer mother who did not have those same experiences when she was coming out in the 80s and my grandparents who certainly did not have those experiences as Jews during the World War II era. So um, my understanding of like the expectation that I could keep my child safe has changed a lot uh, Mm -hmm. over the last, over her lifetime as well. And it sounds like climate is one of the things that has challenged that sense of safety, but it's not the only thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I wonder if we can back up for a moment, because there were some things that you said earlier that I wanted to know more about. One being 
um, sort of what your history has been as an environmentalist and what the environmental values are that you're raising your child with. Sure. Um, my history as an environmentalist started in, I was going to say junior high, but probably elementary school. I mean, it's just always been a part of what I remember in fourth grade, my teacher taught us all about saving the whales. And that just felt like such a huge thing to want to do and be a part of. And so it's always been there. I grew up in New York City mm -hmm. and um, I was co-president of the Environmental Issues Club in high school. And we did a lot of um, urban environmental work, which in retrospect was super valuable and important. Um, things like uh, making sure that the city followed through with their commitments to the community around the um, North River Sewage Treatment Plant in Harlem in New York City. Um, but when I graduated high school, I just wanted to get to the woods and I, <laughs> I left the city behind and I, I moved to Northern Humboldt County and surrounded by Redwoods and became involved in some of the actions there to save the Redwoods. And that felt um, to me just more um, aligned with uh, like it felt it felt important to be saving what remained of these pristine parts of nature um, rather than trying to fix what was already broken. And like I said, in retrospect, I have a whole different perspective on that and how um, easy it was for me to pick up and move across the country and go into the woods if I wanted to and how hard that is for so many other people and how valuable all of that work is to make cities safe. But um, so my journey as an environmentalist has, of course, progressed over time as well. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I got, though, out of being in Humboldt that was so valuable was I developed a relationship with redwood trees that is, uh, I mean, it's like they are mentors and and friends and wise um, ancestors. I mean, I just, I, I feel a heart connection um, that really extends to all trees. And I have spent a lot of time meditating and sitting in redwoods. And, um, and so that was really, I also became a, um, a child therapist and somebody who has a lot of intellectual understanding of early childhood development. And so by the time my kid arrived, she was when she was young, the number one thing that I wanted was to help her feel this relationship and this sense of connection and reciprocity with the living world that's more than human. And so for her early childhood, that was really, I was very intentional about that. And over time, it sounds like that has changed. How do you talk to your child about climate change or do you? I do. You know, it's interesting being someone who works in the field because she's kind of inundated by it. So I have this interesting role where so much of my work and my intention is around um, making sure that people are thoughtful and how they talk to she's nine now. So mm -hmm. she's really just aging into those conversations and wanting um to make sure that at school, for example, the conversations are are thoughtful and trauma responsive and paying attention to their emotions. And, um, and I do my best to live that at home too, but also she's inundated by it. I mean, she's known that this is something that's um, been a major concern to me for a long time. Mostly I wait for her to bring it up and for a long time would try to return the focus to, um, look at all the people who are with us trying to do really great things 
we do a lot of stewardship activities, a lot of cleanup activities, that kind of stuff in collective with, with groups of people so that I can really try to demonstrate that. Um, so about a year and a half ago, I asked her, um, directly asked her if she was worried and she said, no, because, um, there's so much, I don't remember her exact words, but basically so much that I'm doing about it. And I really got this sense of like, oh, I'm still that to you where, you know, at seven, if mom cared this much and was working this hard, it was going to be okay. And I'm kind of waiting for that to, um, that little fantasy to, to break (laughs) because I know it will one day. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's important to note, as you're saying that your child does have a sense of efficacy around the importance of taking action individually and collectively, even if these actions are relatively small compared to the larger actions of, you know, institutions and lawmakers. Um, And I think that's important. I'm glad that you that you mentioned that. I also just want to back up because at the start of your comments, you talked about school um, and what she's hearing in school. And right now, it's kind of a pivotal moment for environmental educators who are really grappling with how to talk about climate change in ways that don't feel overwhelming or frightening to children um, or that don't, you know, kind of negatively contribute to the burden of uh, climate emotions and climate mental health impacts. What do you want teachers to be aware of or to do in schools as they grapple with this? I think about this a lot. Um, it's one of the places where I feel like I can offer some help and support to to the community. But there's not easy answers. And just to give an example, um, the city comes to my daughter's school every year and does a presentation on tap water and gives out uh, reusable water bottles and encourages everybody to drink the tap water. And my daughter loves that presentation and she has never had anything but positive things to say about it. Um, But I learned from her teacher that a peer um, learned for the first time about the Pacific garbage patch during that presentation and became really upset. And so part of the challenge, I think, for teachers is you've got this whole group of kids and it's so hard to know what little bit of information might be the trigger for one of them versus the other that just goes over their head and they're more focused on the positive parts. And um, so there is I don't I feel like it's a hard thing to grapple with. But my answer always starts with um, being attuned to the emotions in the classroom, you know, paying attention to how the kids respond emotionally, how they regulate their emotions, helping them regulate their emotions, and then um, giving the information in small doses and seeing how it lands. Absolutely. That's really important. And it's important for me to hear that as an environmental educator myself, although I'm at the university level. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of universities, I'm a researcher. You have participated in research. Uh, You and colleagues recently published a really interesting and important paper um, about the climate concerns of parents. Can you tell me about that research? Sure. Um, The research was primarily conducted by my dear friend and colleague, Elizabeth Bashard, and um, I got to be in a supportive role in really helping her put it together. Um, But she did a a lit review. And one of the interesting things about it is to see how much 
has changed in a very short amount of time because when she first did the lit review, um, there was about 50% less articles. And then a year later, it had blossomed. And there were so many more that even met the criteria, which is wonderful. Um, There's still not an awful lot of research out there about parents as a cohort um, and the distinct experiences that parents have. Um, But One of the great things for me in being able to work with her and um, our colleague, Jennifer Walk, and and help bring this to publication is just how validating it is, Um, because uh, so much of what is described in the studies and in the literature is stuff that I have experienced. And so to feel just, oh, yeah, like um, parents all over... um, a lot of the literature is limited right now to um, the wealthier nations. So I can't say all over in a very um, inclusive way, but parents in all over Europe and the United States and Canada um, and Australia, um, all uh, there's so much moral injury that happens. There's so much cognitive dissonance that happens. And those, those things just resonate with me so much. Um, and it makes me feel a lot less alone to see mm-hmm. it showing up on paper. The people listening may not, probably will not have read the paper um, before listening to this podcast. Can you just tell us briefly what the findings, basic findings were of the paper and what moral injury is? Yes. Um, so the basic findings are that um, climate change is indeed impacting um, the emotional dimensions of parents' mental health, which really means, you know, how we are feeling as parents uh, and that a lot more research still needs to be done, um, both on uh, getting more information about specific groups of parents and also on how to really support parents. Um, And one of the ways that that shows up most clearly is moral injury. And what that basically means is um, the way that it feels when our actions don't match our values. And uh, as a parent, I I literally feel this every single day because my value system is such that I care tremendously for all living beings on the planet. I care especially for all young children and especially for my child. I so want to participate in making the world a better place. And yet I take actions every day that contribute to the problem. Uh, We're all um, caught up in these systems and we have limited choices. And one of the hardest things for me about becoming a parent is like I said, I cared about the stuff for a very long time prior and actually um, was able to make a lot more uh, what we would call sustainable or green choices before I was parenting. Parenting, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Parenting sucks up a lot of time and energy, (laughs) especially (laughs) in this culture where um, it is so poorly supported. I mean, it's really, I could do a whole nother podcast about how poorly parents are supported and how we're men our brains evolved to be raised in um groups where there were lots of caregivers and um and you know not only are we in nuclear families but we can't even manage to have like paid family leave and child care in this country so you know we're a mess (laughs) and um and so there's an enormous amount of stress an enormous amount of time and money that goes into just keeping things afloat as a parent and so um you know, 
getting the packaged food where you don't know exactly where it came from and um, driving to something instead of walking. And, you know, I, it just so much more of all that kind of stuff, just because I'm a full-time working mom. Absolutely. And so I wonder in that sense, um, where the moral injury comes in, does the moral injury come in where parents are looking at their own actions and feeling a sense of guilt because there's a divide between what they believe and what they do? Or is it a sense of moral injury in that government leaders, industry, corporations are really not taking care of us collectively or creating the conditions um, to be more sustainable as parents? Both. Very much both. So moral injury can be defined by um, either or both of those experiences. And um, for parents, I think it is very much both. Although for me personally, um, as frustrated and angry as I often get at uh, the government and the people with power and the people with money, um, mostly I, for whatever reason, feel it about myself. Mm. Well, you're with yourself all the time. You're in your yeah. own household. So it makes <laughs> and I'm kind of a perfectionist and kind of have yeah. strong opinions and feelings about all of this. So yeah, it makes sense. I wonder, this is my last question about the article, but I wonder, um, so you said that it was a lit review and it looked across comparatively across different countries. Mm-hmm. Was there any analysis within countries of differences between demographic groups? Yes, but not nearly enough, you know, so there's a, um, Elizabeth and I were just talking about this actually yesterday, there's a, there's a whole section on um, proposed modifying factors, and certainly a lot of the articles identify awareness of what they call modifying factors, and um, I said, you know, it's the right language to use in the context of an academic article, Um, but it can completely gloss over what we really mean is that there's all kinds of ways that different forms of systemic injustice intersect to make things like either much harder or somewhat easier, or, you know, people more vulnerable or more resilient. And um, I feel like the word modifying factors doesn't really, um, you can, you can miss that that's what we're talking about. So as someone who is done this research and as someone who is working in a therapeutic setting um, with children, what needs to be done differently with the research? What do we need to know? What directions do we need to go in to really better understand what's going on with parents and how parents' emotional and mental impacts from climate change are impacting their children? Mm. Um, well, for starters, I think just more. I mean, asking asking those questions more in more settings with more of a variety of parents, with people who've um, been through climate distressing events and and those who are anxious about it, uh, looking at different ages, looking at um, how gender identity, how race and ethnicity, how all of those things um, are impacting people's experiences. The other thing that because I, my specialty really is early childhood. And that, that is another part of the conversation that has, um, is really just starting to happen. Um, most of the research on children, if they specify ages at all, they're talking about, um, youth, you know, children 10 and up or older. And, uh, there really is no research that I know of, um, looking at the impacts of climate on, um, 
children under four. Um, and I think that makes sense in that we can't really ask them. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, everything I know uh, about child development is that um, if we apply a developmental model, these are the kiddos that are going to be the most impacted. And um, so I think really starting to broaden how we understand that impact and um, looking at what is happening for young children and the relationship with their parents is always primary when kids are that little. Um, yeah. It just matters so much that whether parents are um, supported enough to be able to hold that space for them. So I would love to see more research on all of that. And so turning it back to yourself, how do you manage your own climate emotions? Um, I have great people to talk to. It made a huge, so a, a few years ago, I found the Climate Psychology Alliance of North America, and that has just made all the difference in the world, because until then, I was really just spinning in my own mind. Um, and since making those connections, I have um, at least once a day, I feel like I have a conversation with a supportive colleague who is thinking about the same things in similar ways. And that just makes all the difference. Um, that, and I also get to do my um, practice. I work with young children outdoors as much as I can on a therapeutic farm. And that also makes all the difference. Yeah. It is a very healing, beautiful place to spend my days. Yes. Yes. I wonder for parents who don't have those kinds of resources, who don't have yeah. a beautiful farm to go to or who are not mental health therapists uh, or professionals themselves, what kinds of resources can they access? Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly there is an effort being made to offer more emotional support to parents. So um, climate cafes are a growing movement and um, you can search online both for Zoom ones and local ones. Um, and that's just a great opportunity to be able to talk to other people who um, are having similar experiences. Some of them are specific for parents. The Good Grief Network offers um, opportunities specifically for parents. Um, there's also climate aware therapists like myself, um, if individual therapy feels like the right fit and accessible. Um, so that kind of support is out there. Um, but another thing is a lot of people do find solace in taking collective action. So whether that's activism in terms of a, um, a parent focused activist organization of which there are many and growing, um, or the types of things I was describing where, you know, we go out with a group and pick up litter or plant trees or something like that. Um, doing that stuff with other people, I think really can help a lot. And then, um, the other things I think about are, I mean, I don't want to get too clinical and therapeutic tools, but like anything that promotes like regulating our bodies and tolerating distress. So that mm -hmm. could be going for a walk. It could be taking those nice deep breaths where the exhale is longer than the inhale. It could be your favorite music. It could be a nice soothing cup of tea. It's um, Rhythm is super helpful. Um, and those things that just kind of bring our body some uh, sense of calmness. Um, none of that's going to solve the problems. But if it gets us a little more able to get through today. You know, I think yeah. that's, that's so important because I've talked to a lot of activists, youth activists in particular, who are so concerned with doing the work that often focusing on themselves and the things that bring them peace, comfort, happiness, 
can also inspire a sense of guilt. Like this is not part of the work, but I think it is part of the work. And it sounds like you're saying it is too. Oh, absolutely. And also like find moments for joy, like get together with your friends and play, you know, go out and see some music or whatever your version of that is. It's, um, and I do, I'm, I'm saying that I struggle with it all the time. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm a workaholic and I often forget to take care of myself or feel like it's not, um, there's too many other things to do, but really like we just, we can't give anything out of empty cups. I mean, I know that's a cliche, but it's so true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you brought up a word that I really love to hear, which is joy. Um, I don't hear it often enough. I, I, whenever I hear it, I want to hear more about it. So I wonder um, for you, are there spaces within this moment and within this movement around climate change and mental health and emotions and parenting and children, are there spaces where we can cultivate joy, not by ignoring the climate problem, but by leaning into it? Hmm. Um, I like to think so. One of the things I'm really interested in exploring right now actually is um, like the transformational resilience model, um, which is Bob Dopelt's work. There's uh, money coming down in the state of California for community resilience hubs. And my hope is to participate in creating programming where those are not just safe spaces that people can go during disasters, which is really important, but right. also places where people can just get together and, you know, share a meal and tell funny stories to each other. You know, and so that is definitely still in the context of the work we need to do. But I think, um, for me, what I find most driven, but what I'm most driven by right now is this sense that um, we need community to do it in. And yeah. so whatever that looks like, however we cultivate that community um, for ourselves and, and each other, I think is so important. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Climate Anxiety and the Kid Question with me, Jade Sasser. I produce the show with production assistance from Elliot Fong at KUCR Riverside. Please be sure to join us for the next episode.